So, uh, so last week we talked about uh, this idea of what witnessing is, and and of course I don't know about you, but um, whenever I hear that word witnessing, I get little shivers up and down my spine because it because it always sounds like that in order to be an effective witness or you know to be a good witness for Jesus that you have to do it a certain way. And the problem with thinking that way is that, well, what if you aren't that way? You know, what if you're not the kind of personality or you're not the kind of person that is often being presented as the optimal personality or the out, the, op, the optimal uh, 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 quality of outgoingness, if you will, I mean, what if you're not that? And what if you try to do that, but then you come across fake and and then you just blow up in your face anyway? I mean, that would be enough to cause you to think, oh, I'm terrible at this. I never want to do it. So um, so that's part of why we're, we're, I think, spending some time kind of working this through. And so today's uh, lesson is focused on uh, thinking about how you might do it with respect to the way that your personality is built or the way that you kind of roll or or what your your sort of relating uh style might be okay so that's kind of where we're going to go with that so uh opening discussion uh as we discussed in lesson 1 witnessing is defined as communicating what you know to be true a key to effective witnessing therefore is tied to the reliability and the integrity of the person providing the witness in today's culture much is made of how consistent is the witness in walking the walk and talking the talk. So we've talked about that at different uh, points along the way, that that if we're going to uh, verbally um, be connected to Jesus in some way, then it is incumbent upon us to be thinking about how, in what way am I living it? And, and not just living it in front of people where they see it, right? but living it as a part of who I am and what I'm about. So it's not like, well, I'm going to live it a certain way at home, but then when I get to church, I will be living it a different way, right? A good test of it is um, how cordial people are in a parking lot. That's a great That's a great test of faith right there. Your Christianity will get tested in uh, in the parking lot, especially if you're in a hurry and so is everyone else, and it's a crummy day outside and you want to get into the place wherever it is, uh, you know, without getting drenched or something like that. So so these are all these are opportunities that we have to live the live the walk, not just uh, talk the talk. OK, so uh, point B, in other words, does your day-to-day life reflect the gospel message that you are seeking to communicate? And again, people today, particularly I think younger people, but maybe lots of people, um, are acutely aware of how uh, hypocritical you might be. And that is a very easy accusation to make of any Christian. Have you noticed that? Okay. If you If you say that you... Uh, have a faith, and that faith uh, permeates your life, then you can almost be assured that somebody will be watching that, and they will be keeping score, or they will be noting inconsistencies from how you are, and how you speak, and how you live, and what you do, and the faith that you profess. Is that a surprise to anyone? I mean, if anything, when Paige came the other day and talked to us, 
or spoke with us, that was, again, that's kind of one of those messages that really resonated with me. And and younger people seem to be, seem to be, uh, let me say it this way, seem to have a harder time. I don't know if that's true, but they seem to have a harder time with the idea that you could be both saint and sinner at the same time. Okay. And I, I don't quite know what to make of that because I know I'm both right. Um, but there, it, there's just some aspect of that that seems to be difficult for people to overcome. Okay. And yet the reality is that's what we are. We're not either or we're both in. Okay. So, uh, point C, what have you, did you discover any challenges this past week in trying to live that consistency? Yes. Yeah, every time I get in my car, it goes to me. I know. No, no, I know. I was in a meeting, certain meeting, and uh, there was a guy there that evidently didn't like me. And he said in front of everybody, I'm glad I don't have your personality. So sometime later, not too, too much later, I noticed that he wasn't in the meeting. So I asked one of the people there, where's so-and-so? He said, oh, he killed himself. I I don't know what my personality had to do with that. Well, again, I I think that sometimes people make that ultimate decision, and they do it um, for reasons that are not known to us, and then they're not around anymore for us to say, how come you did that? Yeah, so that's a tragic story, yeah. But, you know, I would say one of the takeaways from that is that sometimes the inconsistency that we live, there are people that are so fragile in their faith that they can't handle the inconsistency. And so it's not like you have to be like perfect or anything like that. It's not like that. But it's just the fragility of some people. Um, they have a really difficult time with the idea that you could be saint and sinner at the same time. And the conclusion must be that you must not be a, a, a saint. You must not be a saved person because uh, look how you're living your life. Okay? So, again, it doesn't give us license to do what we want. Oh, I'm a saint, so I'll do what I want. Uh, that's what the uh, epistle reading this morning was about. Remember that? Just do this. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that was only an hour ago. Yeah, that's right. Yes, right. What does he say? Shall we sin, keep sinning so that grace may abound? And then the whole thing about being baptized into Christ means that we don't live with, for sin anymore. We, we, live for, uh, we live for God's grace. But the reality is we're both in. Okay, we're both in. Yeah, so from now on, when I ask a question about what went on in the worship service, just do this. Yes. Yeah, Pastor, we remember. Oh, yeah, we're living it already. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just don't ask me what went on in the worship service, okay? Okay, and then uh, we looked at the story of Zacchaeus last week. Uh, So uh, I challenged you to think about uh, any Zacchaeus's that uh, God may put in your life. Did anybody discover any Zacchaeus's? Well, maybe around April 15th, you'll be thinking about Zacchaeus's. Yeah, okay. All right, well, anyway, just to give that some thought. Okay, so let's get into our lesson. There's no one way to witness or share Christ with each other. The early church in Corinth learned that fact through a conflict which arose over the belief that one way of sharing the gospel was the only way. 
St. Paul corrected that misconception in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 11. So let's kind of work through that a little bit. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? Okay, so what Paul is doing is he's he's writing this letter after he's been hearing uh, some controversies and some conflicts and divisions that have arisen in this young church, this little church that was placed in, in Corinth, which is a Greek city, but it was a city of immense influence and wealth and, and religious diversity. And in Greek life, religious diversity means paganism, okay? It doesn't mean denominations of Christianity. There was just one Christian church. It was this little bitty church that Paul had, had planted. He was the church planter. And then after some time, he left, and then this next guy came, or he arose out of that group. His name was Apollos, and then he was kind of the, the second pastor to come and build on uh, the work that Paul had been doing. So, so part of the problem was, was that Paul's personality and Apollos' personality were two different things. They were like night and day, okay? Now, I don't know how that can work. Can that work in a church where you have two pastors who have totally different personalities? I don't know. How does that work? I, you know, maybe it does work. Yeah. Okay. All right. As long as each one knows what their job is and doesn't want the other person's job. Yeah, that's, that's how it works really well. Um, but in this case, Paul had left and then Apollos was now the one. Okay. But the problem was, was that the people who had been a part of the church when Paul had started it, they were very attached not only to his personality, but also to his style of doing things, right? Whereas Apollos came then later, and of course the inevitable happens is that when Apollos came and he started doing things with his personality, and he did it with a style that was different from Paul, and there might have been some people that liked it better when Paul was there, what do you think they said to Apollos? Well, you're not like him, right? There was the inevitable comparing, and then with the comparing came this sort of uh, 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 asserting that one way was better than the other. In fact, one way was right and the other one was wrong, okay? And that began to create uh, positions of polarity in the church. That always happens, doesn't it? When one person says, well, it has to be this way, and the other person says, oh, yeah, it doesn't have to be. It could be this way. Now, all of a sudden, you have this sort of attachment that people have to the style of something, and they lose the substance of it. And so what Paul is doing is he's redirecting them back to the substance of something. It's not to ignore the style. It's just to say that style goes differently with different people, right? And it's not only from the sending point of view or from the doing, but also from the receiving point of view, okay? An example would be, um, let's say that I teach this class in a way that only works for me. And you keep going, God, I'm just not getting that guy. I'm just not getting that guy. Okay. What do you think might happen? 
You know, you can go to Pastor Coleman's class. That's what would happen. Right? I mean, there is a there is a little different style going on there. But 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 it, different is not the same as right or wrong. Different is not saying, oh, it can only be this way and it can't be that way. Okay, it's just to say. I mean, fortunately, I mean, we're in a situation where you have a choice between the two or Starbucks. I mean, really, you actually have three choices, don't you? All right, which we don't like that choice. Okay. So that's what was going on here. And what Paul is saying is, he's saying, your immaturity of faith is showing up, not in whether you think I'm right and Apollos is wrong. It's not that part. It's that you're allowing that difference to divide you. So it's the division and the way you're handling the division is revealing the level of your spiritual and emotional maturity, not the fact that one of you prefers this guy versus somebody else preferring that guy. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, see, that's what was happening. And so then Paul is saying that clearly you all are still thinking from a worldly point of view. You're not thinking from a, a faith-based or a faith maturity point of view. Okay. Now, what that sort of suggests to us is that there is a developmental process in terms of what happens when a person comes to faith. So these these uh, people in Corinth, they'd all come to faith, right? Probably through the Word and through baptism, like we talked about today that in, in the service. Baptism brought them into the faith. So they all said, now we believe. We believe Jesus as our Savior and Lord. But that didn't necessarily translate into thinking like a Christian. They were Christian. They are Christian. But the thinking, which moves from being worldly to being more grace-based, that ha- that was not happening yet. Now, it would happen over time. So we, we sort of look at that in our sort of Lutheran world as the same thing. Um, when a, a, a person is baptized into the faith as a little baby or as a big person, um, what do we say? We say, oh, thank goodness, they're baptized, they're saved. Why? We'll never see them again. What do we do? We nurture the faith, right? Sunday school and Bible class and fellowship and groups and kind of all the stuff that's part of congregational life, because that's designed to nurture and grow the faith, test the faith, grow the faith, test the faith. That's that's the whole purpose of it, right? Okay. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people today, again, uh, younger generations of people who who bring their children to baptism and we never see them again. Because the thought about baptism is that somehow it's a magic wand. Oh, finally, we got them saved. Oh, finally, we got them baptized. So the seed of faith gets planted, but the growth of the faith is, if it happens at all, is going to happen some other way, but it's not happening in the exposure to word and sacrament that you would get in church life. And I think that in many ways is one of the casualties that we're starting to see bear fruit. So when somebody doesn't grow up in the church, they're not inclined to be a part of it later in life. And so you get this sort of um, difficult uh, dichotomy where you have people that uh, identify as Christian, but when you explore more deeply with them what they believe, there really is not a solid grounding in the faith or some sense of what a biblical worldview would provide. It's pretty much cafeteria, lubies, 
I want like a little of this, and I want some of that. Oh, that looks good. I pull that over here. Ooh, I didn't like that. Put that over there. See, it's just it's it's self choosing, which is not all bad, okay. But it is if it doesn't provide me the grounding that I need to deal with life, and we are all dealing with life right now, okay. So so Paul is really he's hammering this pretty good. And it's 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 worthwhile for us to uh, to uh, to think about that that the difference between worldly thinking and let's just call it a biblical worldview, all right, is that it really actually does impact your values, your motivations, your beliefs, and even your behaviors and the way that you interact with each other. And that's what was happening here: is that all those differences were showing up. And now they're allowing that to affect negatively their relationships with each other. Okay, so let's pick it up in verse 5. He says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they each will be rewarded according to their own labor. All right, so notice again, what Paul is doing is he's taking them out of their focus on the personalities and whether they liked them or didn't like them, okay? And then also the style that which that person would bring to the effort of sharing Christ, of doing evangelism, of of doing the mission of uh, the of the gospel in in Corinth, see, and they were losing. You lose sight of that when you focus in on the person instead of on the word, and that is kind of human, right? It's kind of human to let that happen, but um, but if it happens to the uh, degrading of the gospel, then you're then you're corrupting the very purpose for which that uh, that church exists all right so notice how he does it he says i planted apollos watered paul himself is not elevating himself above uh above apollos and i find that really refreshing um because it is very easy at times if you were the one who started something right like you are the charter person of this group okay isn't it the easiest thing in the world to kind of take a little bit too much ownership in the way things are, and then somebody comes along later and messes with it? Isn't it kind of easy to get a little mm, offended, maybe a little overprotective? Um, what's one of the things that people say when you come into, let's, uh, let's not use the example of a church, because I know it would never happen in church, Okay. But like, let's say there's a social group of some kind, like a community group or something like that. And it's made up of people primarily who have been there like forever from the beginning. We were there from the beginning. Okay. And then some new people come, they move into town and they say, hey, we want to be a part of that. And so then they bring new ideas in and new ways of doing things. What's usually the very first thing that the group that has been there forever would say to the group that is new and had these new ideas? Oh, apparently there's a lot of things people say because because all I heard was tone. 
I didn't hear a thing you said, but I got the tone. Right? Yeah, well, yeah. And, and so then, of course, what is that? How does that make the new people feel? Yeah, like we don't want you. Okay. And sometimes a message gets sent. We do want you, but we want you to fit into our box instead of the box that you're bringing to the table. Okay, so we always have to be we always have to be careful of that. But but again, see what Paul is doing is he recognizes that okay that happens, but the trick is to fit, to remember or, or to go back in our memory to why is it that we exist in the first place. Yes, and in glorifying God to do what which glorifies God. Yeah, to share the gospel. See, that's that primary reason is that. Now it's easy to have other reasons, right? Other reasons can sometimes exist, but but sometimes the other reasons become the reason. And then it becomes more worldly, right? It becomes more uh, human-driven or human-oriented than Jesus-driven. Okay, so Paul says, I planted Apollos water. Now, notice he's using, at least at this point, a metaphor or an analogy from uh, gardening, from agriculture, okay? And so that kind of makes sense. There probably were some people that say, yeah, we relate to that. All right. So taking the example from farming, you can think of relational sharing of the gospel. It can be broken up into different roles depending on the condition of the field. So um, uh, take it, taking a look at the, that list that's given there, that's probably not a, a total list. But what is it that a, what is it that a farmer or a agriculture person does first thing they do is they map the ground to be farmed like breaking if you have 40 acres they're going to break it up into you know we're going to plant this we're going to plant that and some will leave pharaoh and others will will uh, uh, build a house on okay the second thing they do is plow the ground third thing they do is plant the seed fourth thing they do is water and fertilize the emerging plants the fifth thing they do is wait expectantly, trusting God to provide. But what are they doing while they're waiting? Fixing stuff. Yeah, right? And then harvesting the crop, and then they save part of the crop for next year's planting, and they sell the surplus. Okay, so here's the question. If you think about that, if you just thought of yourself as a as an agricultural person, or think of it extended into... Um, how you relate is which of those tasks do you feel that you're best gifted for or to engage in given your personality your uh, abilities your comfort zone your your who you are which one of those or maybe a number of them would you say oh yeah that's me oh that's me oh that is not me okay which uh any of those jump off the page for you tim i'm great waiting <laughs> and while you're waiting, are you doing stuff? Yeah, I can't sit still. So. Yeah, well, forget it. You're not that yeah. then. Yeah, okay. All right, what else? Anybody? What, watering, fertilizing? Okay, so see, not so much planting. See, somebody else would have to do the planting, but you would come along later and, you know, kick the clods out of the way and stuff like that. Yeah, that's what you would do. Yeah, okay. Anybody else? Sort of, You sort of get the gist of what I'm asking. Yeah, so what do you think? Takes more than one personality and style, oh, etc. Because not everybody can do all of it, right? And if they tried to, they would get burned out after the second year. Yeah. Whoa, that's a good point. Okay, what else? Anybody? What do you think what do you think I would be? 
watering, fertilizing, planting. I hate planting. No, I especially the seed. I don't have the patience for waiting around for seed to grow, and I don't know how to do it. I would rather buy the full plant and stick it in the ground. No, I would, and take care of it. I would like to do. I would do that, right? Okay, and some stuff that looks dead, I love resurrecting. When I was in Nacogdoches, we had some uh, church members who ran a little nursery, like, a, you know, where you buy stuff, not where you drop your kids off. Um, and uh, and so they would, like, you know, they sell stuff. And so then they had this area behind the store that they called the cemetery shelves. Yeah, yeah. And so whenever there was like a little heat wave or, you know, something that would cause them either to have to, you know, probably looks pretty dead. I mean, I go to Lowe's and they have sort of the same thing, but they don't call it that. They call it the sale shelf. All right. right. But it's the same idea. Stuff looks half dead. And I would just say, hey, you got anything in the cemetery these days? And then they would say, yeah, here you can have it. And then my my joy was trying to bring it back to life, you know. So I felt a little, you know, lordly when I would do that. (laughs) Yes. You pray over it, you know, talk nice to it, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it would feel great if they, you know, would live. And if they would die, hmm, they'd go in the compost pile. So that's the way it, that's the way it works. But I don't, uh, that, so I fit my, I think I fit in the watering, although I do like to plow ground. So, um, cause I like to dig it up like around maybe in a couple of weeks, I'll be getting my shovel and that tool that you gave me. I'll be uh, digging digging stuff up and putting compost down. So uh, somebody gave me gave me a whole bin of composted horse manure. You know I've talked about this. That is gold. Oh my gosh! I just if if I had more of it, I'd be rolling in it. Let me tell you. No, no, it doesn't smell bad. It doesn't smell bad. It doesn't smell bad. It really actually is composted. But a horse manure has the perfect pH uh, levels. You don't have to mess with it. Yeah, I sent off a soil sample from my yard to Texas A&M. Yeah. They do it for free. Yeah. And they came back and said that we needed cow manure. Yeah. You know. mm-hmm. So I got a bunch. Yeah. I put it down and then my kid ate it and I had to call poison control. Oh. <laughs> oh, man, everything grew and it was great. Oh, no one died. No one died. Yeah. That's a plus if no one died. That almost begs for an Aggie joke, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> doesn't it do that? Yeah. How many Aggies does it take to, yeah, okay. Yeah. So anyway, so you can see, I mean, when I talk about that stuff, you can feel, you, do you feel my energy? I, my, I just light up, you know, when I think about that. So I think probably when I think about um, what really jazzes me in church, in church work, church life is is uh number four i think that's i think that's what really it's probably why i would rather do pastoral care and counseling than i would do like cold call evangelism i hate that but um i mean i love the gospel but i just you know that part but some people are they're they're built for that oh my gosh that's like the best thing ever go and talk to somebody that they've never met before not in a million years for me but there might be some in his room. Do any of you like that? Any of you like that? Probably not. You're probably everybody's over 
Pastor Coleman's class. That's probably what it is. I don't even like to do it on the phone. What? I don't even like to do it on the phone. Well, that explains a lot, Marvin. Yeah. All right. So, again, that see, but what's the focus? Who makes it grow? God. And sometimes what happens is we get very hooked into, uh, oh, I just can't do it, or, oh, you know, I'm not good at that, or whatever. Um, and we think that somehow it's all about us. And what Paul's reminding us is that it isn't about us at all. It's the motivation's not about us. The uh, the effect of it is not about us. The outcome's not about us. Okay. But there is something to be said for the idea that the role that you have, if it fits the task you're given, then that can be a marriage made in heaven. But if the task that you're given doesn't quite fit who you are, you're probably always going to feel a little bit like a fish out of water. Okay? Yeah. Uh, Marion, you had your hand up. Well, I'm seeing another as coming from a farming background. Oh, good. Perfect. After, after plowing. Yes. Plowing leaves the ground very rough and bumpy. Yes, it does. You've got to do a lot of disking Tilling and smoothing and, mm -hmm. and getting rid of the rocks and all that. Yeah, you do. And I see that step as being a kind, sharing person, uh, doing for others. You have to have a person's respect to plant the seed. Yeah. You've got to be uh, live your life as an example. And then it's much easier to plant the seed. Good point. I know an example is I had a, a, a neighbor once say, say, why are you doing this for me? Why are you taking me here and doing all these things for me? Yeah. Then you have an opportunity to plant that seed right. through kindness. So there's something to be said for the idea that what you're describing is the kindness prepares the ground. And that it opens the other person's heart to the possibility of receiving what you might offer. You That's, earn their you earn yeah. their respect. Yeah, I remember in uh, probably you told this story before when we first got out of the seminary, Vicky and I did. We went to Salem, Missouri, which was a little bitty church in a little bitty town in the Ozarks, and and because both of us had grown up in the in the suburbs, we never really had done any like acreage gardening which everybody when i say acreage so we were living on a house we lived in a house that was on a, an acre of land which we thought we had died and gone to heaven that was the best ever and so then we had this garden plot that was um a quarter acre and we thought perfect we have time on our hands we we should have a garden and we should plant tomatoes and we figured that you probably get mm, one, maybe two tomatoes off each plant. <laughs> and so we thought, let's get 20 plants because then that would be like 40 tomatoes. And that's perfect for us because we like tomatoes, but, you know, not totally, but we'd still like them. And so anyway, because chicken farming is big in East Texas or in, well, East Texas, but also in Southern Missouri. Uh, we thought, and let's get some chicken fertilizer. You know, that'd be perfect. And why not? Good compost. Well, of course, then the first year, the the high, uh, what is the acid? Yeah, whatever it is in chicken, it killed everything. So then we, we figured, no, that wasn't such a good idea. But anyway, the year that the tomatoes came was a, an abundant harvest 
of like 20 tomatoes per uh, plant. And then little did we realize that everybody in the congregation also had tomato plants. And they said, oh, Pastor and Vicki, they would love it if we were to give you some tomatoes. And we were, in those days, uh, afraid to offend people. <laughs> sure, sure. We, we're, we're the new pastor and his wife. We love people. We would love your tomatoes. So, so anyway, Vicki got really good at canning that year. That was canning. Should be one of these here, too. As a, Okay. All right, so so anyway, that's just a little story, but it but it it does tell you about the idea of the tilling because one of the guys came over with their their tractor or their disc thing and they plowed it all up, and then the best was somebody brought their Troy built over, which was uh you know Troy built is a rear tine uh, tiller. Oh my gosh, that made it so smooth. So I know exactly what you're talking about. We could add that here. All right, well let's go to verse nine. So he says, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now notice what Paul does. He shifts the metaphor because he says, well, some people aren't really into gardening. They're not into farm stuff. They're into more city living. And now we have a building. All right. So he says, by the grace God given has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and somebody else, Apollos, is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So remember what he's he's reminding them is that the gospel is the central thing because what we're doing is built on Jesus. So that as long as something is built on Jesus, then you can be certain that it will offer a lasting sort of grounding. If it's built on worldly uh, uh, values or worldly uh, motivations, then it's not going to last. And so I put up on the board some uh, some words. So live, share, live, share, live, share, live, share. That's our life. Saint and sinner. You live it, you share it. You live it, you share it. You live it, you share it. And whatever you live may or may not contradict or support or be supported by what you share. But then if it's not, then you still live it. And I think sometimes we shortchange that because we're thinking short term instead of long term. When you, in, when you engage in relational uh, sharing of the gospel with people, that's over time. Yes, I will have moments when what I'm living and the way I'm living and what you're seeing me live does not reflect what I'm sharing. But there's other times when it will. Yes. I think you can also, when you live share, live share, you can also share that when you live, sometimes things don't go right and what you learn from that Yeah. and how the gospel helps you. That's right. So there is a progressive, a progressive aspect of that. I, I don't mean that politically, but I just mean that there's a progression to it, right? That, that, uh, how I was doing this when I was 18 is presumably different now that I'm 67. Okay, so there is a maturity there. There's a there's a learning there. There's going. There's plenty of this, of course, right? But it's just that that I think in the world today that could really be beneficial for someone to know that you struggle and that your faith, because it's coming out of Jesus and the gift that He gives, which is faith, hope, and love 
that faith, hope, and love carries you through even when life is terrible, even when there's uncertainty all over the place, as there is now, okay? Because one of the things that I'm noticing um, in in our society, and you see it a lot in younger people, is that hope has taken a giant hit. And how we know that is is that the suicide rates for uh, for young people is going through the roof. And the incidences of anxiety and depression, all those things related to COVID and, you know, lockdowns and just the whole thing. Okay, everything. Okay. But when when uh, Jesus is the source of the hope, then that that is a grounded hope as opposed to a temporary hope. When the world is the source of your hope, it's very conditional because it's based on good things have to happen to me in order for me to have hope. Okay. Good things have to happen to me in order for me to really truly have faith. And I can love, but only uh, at the end of the day, if you love me. And because, see, those things are not constant in the world today. That's where the Jesus-driven faith, hope, and love has a better chance. Thoughts about that? Yeah, Richard. Well, what's hitting me is, um, going back to the farm metaphor, Yep. It's the time of being fallow. And my, probably my best example is Moses. Moses goes out and kills the Egyptian. Yeah. And spends 40 years in the wilderness. If you will, God was keeping him fallow, making him wait, whatever, before he could do his mission. So sometimes we need to be fallow. Yeah. We need to be. But at the same time, if what I'm sharing is God's gospel, that seed is planted. Okay, so it doesn't return void. It just takes maybe its time, you know. The other thing is that I think Maybe maybe any of us could sort of relate to this is that um, where you are in your faith today is uh, that you can thank somebody that isn't alive anymore who planted the seed in you. And and so then as you grow in your faith, somebody else came along and helped to nurture it or somebody else came along and and helped to uh, uh, to nurture it in some way that it's because it wasn't just dependent on that one early person in your life to plant the seed, and then that person was with you all the, all through the journey. We're able to we're able to celebrate that because again, it's God making it grow, right? See, it's God. God's doing what He's working through the different people in our lives to make that happen, um, where it's not just dependent on one person. Yeah, Carl. The uh, it just kind of came as an aha to me was that. Difference between the worldly and the and the Jesus mm-hmm. relationship of, of faith, hope, and love. Yeah. Uh, the worldly side, today and forever, really, is to- totally unstable. I know. And and it's constantly changing and mm-hmm. constantly taking on different aspects and, and the way you look at life. Yeah. And, and there's just no stability there. Right. But you look at Jesus, and you look at Scripture, and you look at the grace of God, mm-hmm. it's solid. That's right. Purely stable. Yeah. The beauty of it is that it's unconditional. It's unconditionally offered. 
the world can say that it will offer you an unconditional thing, but it can't deliver on that because at the end of the day, the world had it's dependent on if good things happen, I can have faith. If I see it and it's good, I can trust in it. But see, that's the dilemma that a lot of people have is they also see evil in the world. They see brokenness. They see things falling apart and they go, oh, well, then there must not be the a God of love must not exist because there are all these bad things happening. Yeah, Eddie. Yeah, I think we need to realize that the basis is faith. That's yeah. the most important. And both hope and love are based on faith. Yeah. And and a good example of all the godless countries, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about this a lot. Yeah. When you are losing faith in a whole nation, that you have terrible consequences. Yeah. That's why we keep teaching the faith, and then we really want the governments around us to uh, support our teaching of the faith. Because if we can't teach the faith, then it very, it's like you said, hope and love follow that. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph. Uh, I noticed with kids my age, um, well, I guess I'm not a kid anymore, so I shouldn't say kids my age. Young adults uh, your age, yeah. <laughs> uh, you see a lot of people looking for role models. Yeah. And the problem is when they go looking, they find perfect people. Yes. Um, and that kind of ruins them because they get the idea of, oh, I have to be perfect because I look up to this person and this person is usually concealing their flaws. Um, so you don't see people who come up to them and say, hey, I've got this problem and I know you do too, so let's work on it together. It's usually just, oh, get over your problem because that's what you got to do. I know. See, and so then that sets up an untenable um, expectation. And then when that the flaw of that person shows up, well, then that person is totally crushed. And why did I even believe? What was the point? Okay, great point. Yeah, Kathy. I really appreciate you making the statement about the person who did this may no longer be here. Uh huh. I think that's really important for us to remember when we are dealing family members, friends, that yeah. we try to do this. We have to take solace in that because we may not live to see it. That's right. I think that's hard. Yeah. I think it, you know, if you have a family member, you're praying over, you're doing all this. Mm -hmm. You may not get to see it in your life. I know. I think we have to just take faith that that will happen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, because it is somebody in your family, the receptivity is not there to hear what you have to say. Like, have you ever, like, wanted to trade your kid off with somebody else's kid? <laughs> you ever, ever had that thought about doing that? I mean, some people have perfect kids, and, and if they did, then that you don't really fit with that. You don't fit with that, right? I mean, I imagine that probably at some point in, in my parents' life, they wanted to trade me off. So it, was, it would be hard to imagine that when I think about it. Yeah. But, but again, that's part of, part of it. But in some sense, we nurture the young faith in our children, and then what do we do? We send them off to school. Okay. Now, they get tested at school. I mean, even in junior high, they get tested. Um, gee, I thought the world was fair, and it turns out it's not. Okay. Gee, I thought that um, uh, my teachers would all treat uh, us all the same, and oh, it turns out they're not. But then they come back, and, and what do we do? We sort of talk it through. We kind of process it. 
Um, so it's not all bad that they go off. Um, but if you go off and you're not grounded, then what you're left with is somehow trying to find meaning and purpose and joy in life the only from that worldly point of view. And you lose, or maybe you just never had, the true grounding that gives you a sense of true faith and hope and love. Okay, so let's go last page here. So thinking about mapping the ground or laying out the foundation is to prayerfully consider the following steps. So actually, we're gonna I'm introducing them to you, and then we're going to spend more time uh, in the next couple of weeks talking about it. Okay, so the first one is ask Jesus to open your eyes to recognize the opportunity to share Christ, which that when when it presents itself, like a field that's ready for planting. Yeah, you know, somebody that works in agriculture can can read the land. And they read the land and they in some of it is sending away their stuff to A and M um or to Texas, where whichever one you prefer. Um but it would be that you, you get a read of the environment. You get a read of the way the land is. Is it ready for me or do I, I need to add to it? Okay, so that's the first thing. That, but what you're doing is you're praying that God will open your eyes to see it when it's there, as opposed to just assuming that you'll recognize it and, and that you will uh, jump on the opportunity. So it's, a, it's an intentional prayer. It's a, it's a focused prayer rather than um, uh, just a general sort of thing. Okay. Second thing is that you pray then for the opportunity and for yourself as the one doing the witnessing, okay, the witnesser. Our third thing is you get better informed as to how people communicate and connect so that you can adapt how you present it to their way of receiving it, as opposed to saying, well, I only have one way to present it. If they don't like it, tough, okay? That makes it more about me instead of about you. So anyway, the book, I thought the book had some pretty good uh, stuff here. So some people are research-based, meaning that if you speak to them the truth, they're going to fact-check you. That's what they're going to do. And they are strong in analyzing what you say, and they're going to look for inconsistencies. Okay? They are often well-read, so you cannot fluff your way through. You have to know your stuff. And really, they're not too concerned about how you feel. And in fact, if you say how you feel, they probably aren't going to trust you because that's not where the, the thing is. The thing is in the, the factualness of it. And if you ask them how they feel, they'll tell you what they think. You ever notice that sometimes they'll say, hey, how do you feel about that? And they'll say, well, I thought. And you're thinking, well, I, I didn't want to know what you thought. I want to know how you feel. OK. All right. So that's a uh, research based people. All right, second are heart-based people who primarily connect at an emotional level rather than a knowledge or research level. They are strong in assessing the emotional impact which ideas or information have on people. Their language often includes I feel or I felt. And you often hear this in the spiritual sense. People will say, I felt led by the Lord to go do such and such. Okay, how do you think the research people would react to that? They would say, prove it, you know, or where in the Bible does it say that? Okay, that's what happens. Okay. They have a radar for how other people feel valued, accepted, and belonged, and at times will advocate for others at that level. That's heart-based people. Okay. 
And then the third part, the third style is action-based. These are people that take a very practical or pragmatic view. They feel intense restlessness if there's too much talk with too much emotion but not enough action. So they love projects with concrete and measurable ends, and they're very results-oriented. They embrace or reject ideas on the basis of their practical implication and how doable they are. And they'll often say we should, or they'll offer advice on what you should or should not do. Okay? So anybody relate to those? Yeah? Okay. How many research-based people? Now we get true confession here. Research-based people? Okay. That We have a few in here. Awesome. Heart-based? Yeah. I know I am too. And then action-based? Which you might go, so, so I'll tell you what, how it often works is like you have your, the order, like your first and second and third. Okay. So, uh, heart's number one for me. Hate, no big surprise here. Okay. Uh, number two, research is for me because truth is still important to me. And then three, if I ever get around to actually doing something about it, that would be great. <laughs> I'm thinking now who did I who I married? Let's see. Yeah, so anyway, okay. Um so that's so the what's the idea of learning about this or thinking about this with other people? Yeah, you you have to adapt yourself to them. Now that will come as a shock to a lot of people. You are the adapter, they aren't. Okay? But uh, you know, there might be some mutual adaptation going on later. All right, uh, fourth one, practice listening for other people's base. That's what those, those are, so that you can adapt your messaging. Now, notice, you're not, adapt, you're not changing the message. It's not changing the message to tell them what they want to hear. It's not that. It's not about pleasing people and saying, oh, i I got to tell you what you want to hear. It's not that. But you're adapting the style in which you package it or you deliver it, okay? Uh, e, you practice listening to learn and connect to the other person's story, right? Yep, there you go. And then the last one is you practice asking questions that encourage the other person to tell you more. But here's the thing. If you do that, you have to be prepared for the fact that there is more. So if you don't want to hear more, don't ask for it, Okay. So what would be one one thing you could say that would encourage somebody to tell you more? What would your church life? You could do that. Yeah. I will often add, especially with a nun, not an N-U-N, but an N-O-N-E. Okay. How many how many nuns have I talked to lately? Yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of, you know, I, I don't tiptoe around it, but I kind of do try to be a little bit more sensitive to it because when somebody says none, you know, and they know that I'm a pastor, I'm a, I'm a counselor, but I'm also a pastor. And so they know that there's a faith thing in there for me. And so I always ask that when I work with people is, um, do, do you care if we talk about things from a spiritual point of view? And more and more people are saying no. No, they don't care. No, they don't. No, they don't want it. We don't. Younger, younger people, younger people. Um, I've been doing some premarital counseling lately, and they they don't want the spiritual part. And I'm going, gosh, I don't know. I'm going to have to camouflage it really well. <laughs> well, they could be. See, and I, I hadn't really thought about this because I, I come at it from that heart-based perspective. It's hard for me to go into the research-based and not end up sounding preachy. So that's just an occupational hazard, and so i got to 
I have to always rethink how I'm going to do that. Okay. All right. So um, anyway, so we're going to explore some of these a little bit more uh, in coming weeks, and then we'll get ready for Genesis. Okay. All right. Any other closing thoughts? Tim, a closing thought? I just think that a lot of this is relationship. I mean, building relationships, a relationship could be 30 seconds. My father used to be an incredible witness. I mean, even in this funeral, he had friends that said, your dad could talk to somebody in the back of a cab and share God's word. Um, but in that cab, I believe he built a relationship because he was extremely genuine. And that those that he talked to know that when he started that conversation, it was out of love and concern for that individual. And then that manifested itself into a witnessing opportunity. And that's what we do. That's how we live our lives. And so I always like to you know, be a witness for God and use words when all else fails. Um, live your life in such a manner. Yeah, I think, I think the trick is to value the relationship enough that the other person doesn't think that the only reason that you're talking to them is eventually you want to share the gospel with them. That I think there is a finesse there that because that feels manipulative, you know, like, oh, I just am knowing you because of this. And then once I did that, I'm out of here. You know, I mean, not that you would, but it just comes across that way. So I do think that there is a a premium there on relationship skills. But but it but you even if you feel like you're the most the worst person ever at it, it still is God's word that doesn't return void. It's just that sometimes when we offer the word, it feels like we're throwing rocks against a wall that just bounce right off of it. Well, I think one of the things, too, that we can share is, like you said, the Jesus-based faith, hope, and love, and the worldly. I heard just recently, we were talking about you know, Christmas and why we believe in the birth of Christ, yeah. and that we have faith in Jesus that gives us hope, yeah. and the world has faith in the world and government and corporations and such, and when they right. fail as they are now, they yeah. are hopeless. Yeah, and so we can offer them the hope. Yeah, if that if your hope was based on that, and then that thing disintegrates or turns out to be fake because it was just about somebody getting money, then you feel lost. Yeah. Okay. Well, good stuff. We'll we'll pick it up next week and and see kind of where it goes. And uh, um, this is I I'm I'm getting jazzed about this. I think it's pretty good. So let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together and thank you for the opportunities that we have to uh to plant the seed and and some in planting the seed are are nurturers of the seed and some are plowers of the ground i mean there's all kinds of different ways that we can be a part of the mission to share you with others lord we we know this we live in a world filled with hopeless people and yes there are moments even in our own lives when we feel that hope sort of takes a hit but at the same time, we always return back to the fact that we know that um, faith, hope, and love comes from you by virtue of the, the gift that you gave to us in your son, Jesus. So um, help us, to, be, uh, uh, help us to, to feel secure in that. And then as we go about our day uh, in the coming days of this week, that uh, whatever opportunities there are to share the hope, that we can certainly share it and live it and share it and live it. So watch over us this week, dear Lord, until we're together again, and we pray those things in your Son's name. Amen.